be seated. <clears throat> we are beginning a new eight-week eight series today called A Healthy Community of Love. And we will be looking at traits and practices of the people who enable and sustain healthy communities. I trust that we'll all agree that there are no perfect churches. A lot, of, a lot of us have spent way too much time trying to find one, and it's a futile, futile search, obviously. Um, but I would say that there are healthy churches and unhealthy churches. Or perhaps it's better to say that every church has dimensions of unhealth and dimensions of health. So my question is, at the outset here, is what makes a church healthy? I wonder how you think about answering that question. Of course, a church must uphold as a fundamental reality the, the truth of God's word to be healthy. A church cannot be healthy without coming under the authority of God in these God-breathed words of scripture as he exercises his authority through scripture. But we all know that there are many churches who affirm the authority of scripture and uh, pride themselves on doctrinal purity that we would not describe as healthy. So it has to be something, something, there's something beyond this. Often people look at measurable metrics. I knew a leader once who talked a lot about nickels and noses. You know, we can measure the budget, we can measure the attendance. Is that what makes a healthy church when the attendance is large and the budget is large? And it's true that all of us feel better when the room is a bit more full. It is. And it's true that we probably feel better when the giving seems to be going well. But the reality is, is that those metrics are unreliable indicators of health. It's possible for there to be a crowd in the room and for there to be genuine unhealth in the church and for the church to, to suffer as a result. An unhealthy focus on those metrics can lead actually to significant unhealth in the body of Christ. I think we all know that instinctively. So health isn't found primarily, primarily in measurable metrics, but it's also not find, found primarily in entertaining programs or compelling teaching materials or the quality of our music either. All of these things, including growth in numbers and growth in giving, uh, can be offshoots of health, but they are not its source. They are not the thing itself. So then where is health to be found when we think about churches being healthy? Well, let's go back to Jesus for just a minute, our king, the one who is the head of the church, including of this church. You remember in the upper room with his disciples the night before he was crucified, he gave them a new commandment, he said, in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then Jesus says, and by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what Jesus is saying is, look, love for one another is a primary feature, a defining feature of my disciples. This is the way that people will know that you're my, my disciples. Do you remember when Paul is writing a letter to a, a very, we might say, unhealthy church, the church in Corinth? They had a lot of issues, a lot of problems. They had factions. They were... Uh, fighting each other, and they were glorying in their supernatural gifts. And you remember what Paul says. He affirms these gifts of the Spirit in chapter 12, but then he gets to the end of chapter 12, and he says this. He says, look, now I'm going to show you the most excellent way. 
the way beyond all comparison. And that then leads him into chapter 13, as many of you know, the great words, the reflection that he gives us on love. This excellent way is more central and essential than prophetic powers, than understanding all mysteries and all knowledge. It's more central than a faith that can move mountains. It's more central than uh, giving all that one has and surrendering it to the poor. It's more central than speaking in the tongues of men and of angels. This love is the most excellent way, Paul says. And I would suggest to you that this love expressed in the relationships of the Christian community that is known as the church, of sinners who are saved by grace, this love as it traffics in the church family is the primary metric of health for the church. Now, it's harder to measure, obviously, a lot harder. But I don't think that makes it any less, uh, any less the metric of health that it is. So if that's the metric, then what's the next thing to say? Well, let's love one another. Let's love one another. And yes, that would be exactly what we are called to do and to be as the redeemed people of God. But we all know, don't we? I mean, we all know this. We all know that we're called to love one another. We all know how challenging that can be. I mean, it's challenging enough with the person that you fell in love with and decided you wanted to spend your life with, right? In marriage, we recognize how challenged that love can actually be because it reveals, these relationships reveal layers upon layers in us that we have to deal with. And it can happen in friendships and family relationships. So it's hard enough to love the people that we've chosen, not to mention the ragtag group of people in this room that we didn't choose, that God chose to be a part of the church. So it's challenging. Well, why, why is it so challenging? Well, the big issue is sin. Sin puts all kinds of obstacles on the Christian way of love. And we all wrestle with sin. Remember 1 John 1. If anyone says that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Or Hebrews 12 verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The implication of both of these verses is that we continue to struggle and wrestle with the reality of sin in our lives. Every one of us does. And as a result of every single individual that makes up the church wrestling with sin, that means every relationship in the church will wrestle with sin, which means when you think about the church as just an amalgamation of all of these micro little, these relationships, then that means that every single church will wrestle with sin. And here's my thesis. It is that the key difference between healthy churches and unhealthy churches is this. Unhealthy churches deal with sin in a fleshly way, whereas healthy churches deal with sin in a godly way. Unhealthy churches deal with sin in a fleshly way, whereas healthy churches deal with sin in a godly way. This series over the next eight weeks will examine some traits and practices that are central to dealing with sin in a godly way or dimensions of who we are and that's where we'll start today each of them will urge us in response to the grace of God that is given to unworthy people like us will urge us toward holiness and therefore toward health and the reality is as we all know that healthy community is not natural it is not the default the default is unhealthy the default is gossip and anger and rage and factions and, and slander and 
lack of forgiveness. That's the default. That's the way of the world marked and marred by sin. And that does infiltrate into the life of the church. Healthy communities are not natural at all. They're supernatural. They're empowered by the God of heaven and earth through his spirit that he gives to us. And the beauty of the call of Jesus on our lives and on us as a body is that we are called by him not to settle for just natural things, not to settle for just the worldly way, but to, 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 to rise up together and to pursue the otherworldly reality. To pursue this call to love one another as Jesus has loved us. And my hope and prayer is that we can continue to press into this call to a supernatural way of life together with the people who are in this room right now and those who were here at 830 who'll be here at four and those who couldn't be here this weekend. But the people who call this church home. And if you're a visitor and you're on your way in, I hope that it's true for you as well if, if, you, if you become a part of this church family. So we're starting this series on the ground floor this morning. And our passage today is one of the great texts in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. The reason I say we're starting on the ground floor is because we're going to start at this basic, central, foundational gospel truth that I believe must be the ground and the foundation on which anything in the church is built. So this passage is dense, and our Run through it today will by no means track with all of the density of this text, though my hope is that at some point in the future in our time together we'll come back and do just that. Uh, the scene is Antioch in Syria, about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Antioch is a base for the Gentile mission of the church. And Paul and Peter and other Jewish Christians are in Antioch and they are enjoying meals together with Gentile believers. So they're eating meals together. That was a very significant act in the ancient world. It still is today, but even more so in the ancient world, signifying fellowship and fraternity and relationship. Then certain men came to Antioch from James, from the church in Jerusalem. And when they arrived in Antioch, Peter and many others with him, including even Barnabas, Barnabas who had been part of Paul's delegation to Jerusalem, they actually stopped eating with Gentile believers. And then Paul, because of that action, opposes the apostle Peter to his face, he says, and calls his actions hypocritical. In Greek, uh, a hypocrites is an actor who wears a mask and plays a role. So Paul is saying to Peter and accusing him and the others of putting on a mask and of not being their true selves, acting out the false script of these other men who had come up from Jerusalem and not the true script of the gospel in the way that they're relating to these Gentile believers. And Paul says further in verse 12 that you did this, Peter, because you were afraid of this group of men. You were afraid of their disapproval and their judgment. And their actions were, as Paul says in verse 14 of our text, they were not in step with the truth of the gospel. So with that backdrop, Paul then articulates two foundational truths of the gospel. And we'll focus more on the second one, but I just want to say something about the first, which is what we call justification by faith. And that is the thrust of this text, but we're going to focus a little, in a little different spot this morning. But let me say something about this. this. The standard meaning of this word justification, so if you look at verse 16, yet we know 
that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. The standard meaning in the Second Temple Jewish period of justified is to be adjudged or considered righteous. And that's what the ESV footnote says in your pew Bibles. It says to be counted righteous. It might help us to think of a law court analogy where the judge rules in favor of the defendant and the defendant is then justified or acquitted or declared to be in the right by the judge. And that's the idea here. Who is declared to be in the right by God and on what basis? That's the question. And Paul is saying in verse 16 that we are justified by God. We are declared to be in the right by God on the basis solely of our faith in Jesus the Messiah. Not on the basis of keeping the works of the law, the Jewish Torah. Faith is trusting in Jesus. It is a complete surrender of our lives to him. Trusting in Jesus who is the only one through his death and resurrection that has genuine value in the new creation of God's making. It is this act of surrender in language that's inspired by the New Testament scholar John Barclay. Faith is acknowledging the bankruptcy of the human person, acknowledging that we have no value or worthiness in ourselves, looking solely to Christ as the giver of worthiness and value through the transformative dynamics of the cross and resurrection. God welcomes us, justifies us, declares us to be in the right on the basis of faith, not on the basis of any other worth that we might have accrued, in this case, worth according to keeping the Jewish law. The second key gospel truth in this text that Paul unpacks, and our focus for this morning is found particularly in verse 20. And it's the fact that Paul is saying that the result of this faith in our lives, this yieldedness to Jesus, is that we have been literally remade. Or as Jesus would say, we've been born again. And as Paul unpacks this fact that we are remade by this gift of God in Christ, he, he begins to expose to us the foundation of our relation to God. So look with me at verse 20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live, by, I live in the flesh. The life I, I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What animates and directs Paul's life after the call of God's grace, the gift of God in Christ, is the presence of the crucified and resurrected King, Jesus, who now lives inside of Paul. Paul says, I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And he says the new life that he lives, he lives by faith, by this posture of complete dependence in the Son of God, faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And it's those final words of verse 20 that I, I want us to marinate in together, to hear loudly and clearly, because they are the foundation of this new life of faith that every one of us who is in Christ rests upon. They give the key insight into what grounds our life 
in God and our life together. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Son of God, that is the Messiah, the King, and more than that, the eternal Son who shares in the divine identity of the Father. This Son, Paul says, loved me and gave himself for me. Those are past tense verbs. Loved, gave himself. And they point back to the cross, of course. And that becomes even more clear as Paul mentions in the next verse, in verse 21, he mentions that Christ died. That that's clear and foremost in his mind at this point as he's writing. This is the defining action of Jesus, the Son of God. His self-giving act of love at the cross and this act of giving himself up for our sins is an act of substitution on our behalf. This is the center of our understanding of God and it is the center of our understanding of his love, this act of self-giving. We need to hear this again and again, to remember how monumental it is that the Son of God loved us, gave himself wholly and completely to the point of death. I know we've all heard that. Most of us have heard that before. But it's an absolutely astonishing reality. And he did this for me, Paul says. Note those pronouns. They're kind of shockingly personal and individual, aren't they? Who loved me and gave himself for me. It's interesting in a passage that's provoked and then highlighting, provoked by and highlighting communal concerns. Remember, it was, it was the exclusion of the Gentile believers from the table that prompted Paul's reflections here that Paul uses such tremendously personal and individual language. It's the me and the for me of this text that are so powerful. Luther writes this about these words. Read the words me and for me with great emphasis. Print this me with capital letters in your heart. And do not ever doubt that you belong to the number of those who are meant by this me. Christ did not only love Peter and Paul. The same love he felt for them, he feels for us. Has this me been printed in capital letters on your heart? You are loved by Jesus. He gave himself for you. Do you know this? Does this ground your sense of who you are? Does it shape and inform your self-understanding? There is actually no more important truth about you than this truth that Paul communicates here. None. Nothing more important. Nothing more foundational. The, the Swiss theologian Karl Barth was one of the most erudite and prolific theologians of the early to mid-20th century. Six years before he died in 1962, he took a tour in North America to do some lectures. And he was lecturing at the Rockefeller Chapel on the campus of the University of Chicago in 1962. And during the Q&A time after the lecture, a student asked Bart if he could summarize his whole life's work in theology in a sentence or two. Bart famously answered the question, yes, I can. 
in the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. When he answered in that way, he was 30 years into his magnum opus that we know as church dogmatics. It ended up being a six million word piece, plumbing the depths of the character and being of God and the centrality of the revelation of Jesus and all that comes from that in the life of the church and salvation. And he just said, in the words of a three-year-old or a four-year-old, Jesus loves me, this I know. Is there any truth more profound and more basic and more central for our lives? Of course not. This is our foundation. And Paul reveals that foundation here as he's writing about a life that's been remade by the gospel of Jesus. A life that's defined by this faith in the Son of God. He, he, he just gives us a glimpse. It's not his primary theme here, but he gives us this glimpse that how I relate to Jesus. I relate to Jesus as one who loves me and gave himself for me. And when he says that word me, we need to remember that the me there is not a me who's glorious and worthy. The me there, Paul's already described in chapter one of, of this fighting letter to the Galatians, that he persecuted the church of God violently and he tried to destroy it. And while he was doing that very thing, God loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul can write later in, in Romans chapter 5, he, he says, you know, we, but we know the love of God in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies, while we were running away from him, Christ died for us. The love of God was made known to us in that Christ died for us while we were enemies and still far off. He loved me. So if you're sitting here and you're thinking, you know, he couldn't love me. Well, Paul would say to you, that's absolutely wrong. That doesn't make any sense because he loved me. And I was running in the opposite direction. It's this love for, for Paul that he, he unveils. And, and as he does, this is the relationship with the living God of the universe that's at the heart of the life of faith. This is at the foundation of any way that we can live in the church today. It is to know beyond the shadow of a doubt with the Apostle Paul that he has loved me. And that he has given himself for me. Do you know that? Is that the ground of your being? Is that the most important thing about you when you wake up on Monday morning and Tuesday morning and when you walk into a challenging and difficult meeting at work? Do you know that he loved you and gave himself for you? Here's, here's my contention. No Christian individual, no Christian relationship, no Christian community can be healthy outside of a deep and abiding assurance of the love of Christ for us. And here's my proof text in this case, Ephesians chapter 3. Paul has expounded the beauty of the gospel of God's grace. He's described just how amazing the mystery is that the Gentiles will be brought in with the Jews to be heirs of the, the inheritance of God's new creation work. He's talked about the amazing gift of the grace of God that's given to us by faith, not on the basis of anything that we've done. Has no sense in relation, the love of God for you, related to what you've done before or who you are. Has no relation to your worthiness. That's the radical nature of the gospel in the Apostle Paul's writings. And as he's expounded all of that, he's about to turn the corner to say, this is how that should be lived out in your life and in mine. How you should live this out, the churches in Asia Minor, in this letter that we call Ephesians. But I think was really a circular letter to be read to many churches in Asia Minor. And he's about to turn the corner to say, this is how you're supposed to live. Do you remember what he says at the end of chapter 3? He says, I'm on my knees praying for you people. 
I love you. I'm praying to the Father, the one from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. And this is what I'm praying for you, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. And I want to add for you, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This is how you're going to live the life that I'm about to articulate in chapters 4, 5, and 6 of the book of Ephesians. It's only as you're rooted and grounded in the love of Christ for you that you can walk now in humility, bearing with one another and, and, and forgiving each other. All of the things that he'll go on to say, they're rooted in this exhortation, this prayer that you would be grounded and rooted in love. This is your foundation. And the amazing thing about this love is that it's just given indiscriminately. That was scandalous. The grace of God was not calibrated to how worthy you were based on adherence to the Jewish law. That's why Paul's so upset with Peter and his friends. It's not calibrated to where you fall on the scales of the American meritocracy. It has nothing to do with the level of education that you have or the level of wealth that you possess or how friendly you are or how popular you can be. It has nothing to do with any of those things through which we divide the world into the haves and the have-nots. We cut people up and push them into corners. And the amazing thing about the love of God in Christ, and this is the, the, the nuclear explosion in the book of Galatians, is that it's not calibrated to anything that you were, to any measure of worth that you may have. It comes freely. The one who loved me and gave himself for me. Henry Nouwen said this, our true challenge is to return to the center, to the heart, and to find there the gentle voice that speaks to us and affirms us in a way that no human voice ever could. The basis of all ministry, and I would add one could say the basis of the whole Christian life, is the experience of God's unlimited and unlimiting acceptance of us as beloved children. An acceptance so full, so total and all-embracing that it sets us free from our compulsion to be seen and praised and admired and frees us for Christ who leads us on the road to service. Do you know that unlimiting acceptance of the love of Jesus for you? Now as we bring this to a close, let me just consider some of the ramifications of this. First for us as a community and then finally for us as individuals. But the ramifications of this deeply personal and individual love from Jesus are very corporate and communal. We are the fellowship of the beloved, the people of faith who trust in Christ and who know that God and the gospel has welcomed us into his family without regard for who we were before we met him. As such, this radical grace and this alone, this radical love and this alone enables the creation of an otherworldly kind of community in the, on planet Earth. A non-competitive community of love that is defined by care and sacrifice and self-giving for one another that extends to anyone and everyone who chooses to walk in the door and say, Jesus is Lord. I belong here. 
this radical love of God creates a radical new community free from every other system of worthiness that we can invent that is exhibited as Jesus said in our love for one another Paul says for freedom Christ has set you free as he continues to write and he begins to expound the nature of the community that's born out of this radical grace of God in chapters 5 and 6 of Galatians he begins with these words for freedom Christ has set you free and then he continues later in chapter 5 and says this for you were called to freedom brothers and sisters only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh and what does he say through love serve one another you've been liberated from all the other systems that divide you. You've been brought in by the love of Christ. So love, through love, serve one another. So it has a radical impact on the community of God's people. But then let's think again about this radical impact upon us, the individual, the person. Think about how rattled our age is with notions of self-worth. We are trying to be worthy, all of us in one way or another. We are trying to demonstrate to the watching world and probably for some of us even more so to our own critic on the inside that our lives count, that they matter, that we're actually something to be reckoned with, that, we, that we're not just a waste. And the expectations and standards of a culture in which we try and try and try to, to silence that critic through our own efforts, along with the addition now of social media on top of it, has only, which has only intensified the pressure. We're always being watched. We're always posting something or thinking about what we need to post. Think about our, our, our young people in all of this. And because of that, we, we end up being riddled by anxiety and depression in ways that are unprecedented in this world and I say that with no sense of judgment but just a, a sense of compassion and fellows struggle with all of you as we walk through this world but I want to say we all want to know that we matter we all want to know that we count and we want the world to, to tell us so but it's so stingy in in its affirmation and so it's not, most time we, we are, we're not going to find it there so one solution and this one gets peddled a lot in the literature out there, is we just embrace ourselves. Listen to the title of Brene Brown's 2010 book, The Gifts of Imperfection. Let go of who you think you're supposed to be and embrace who you are. Now, I'm not saying there's not some truth in that book for sure, but that, that idea of embracing who you are, the sense that I can assuage that inner critic by just giving myself a hug is just not really going to work. And, and, and we know that because we know that we can't trust our own voice. We know that we don't have the authority to declare that I'm okay. And, and at some point, that project is going to run empty. It is. And we're going to run on, we're going to, you know, hit, hit a rock. Into all of this, a world in which we know that our fragile egos cannot sustain us. What we really need is an embrace from the outside. We need an embrace from a voice that has genuine power and authority to change the world and to change you and to change me. And that's exactly what we receive in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of God. We receive this embrace that the God of the universe has done something so extraordinary for you. He has loved you. He has given himself for you. That you are now welcomed into his family as a child of the living God. And this is the foundation of who you are. And this embrace, which silences for once, and the only, it's the only thing that can silence that critic 
This embrace then leads us, as Noun said, it sets us free from our compulsion to be seen and praised and admired. We don't need to be seen and praised and admired by the world around us anymore because we have been seen and welcomed and admired and valued and embraced irrevocably by the living God in his son. And that creates a new reality that frees us. So as those who are loved deeply in this way, we need no longer hold grudges. Love, remember, doesn't keep score. We don't need to expect something out of other people. We need not clamor for position or power. We need not seek attention. We need not get credit. We need not avoid the burdens of others. We need not withhold forgiveness. We need not please ourselves to the exclusion of pleasing others. We need not gossip or slander about our brothers and sisters or our neighbors or our friends to say that the Son of God has loved us and given himself up for us, for us, is to say quite simply that our cup overflows. It overflows. And we are filled and full with the only thing in the universe that can bring us rest and peace. And because of that, we do not need to be enslaved by the opinions of others. We don't need to keep up with others. It's interesting, isn't it, that Peter's actions that Paul says were hypocritical were rooted in the fear of the circumcision party. This is important. It was the fear of those men that had come up from Jerusalem that led him to to withhold fellowship with the Gentile believers. And I think it's fair to say that in this instance, his desire for their approval exposed a void in his heart that exposed a diminished view of the love of Christ for him. And let's remember that if this can happen to the man who has been thrice reinstated by the resurrected Christ on a beach over breakfast, that we too are not above such diminishment of our view of the love of Christ. May we reflect on being loved over and over and over again. Our cup runs over. I heard a, I'll close, just the final two things, but I, I heard a talk given in college that I've never forgotten. And I can't remember really all that it was about, but I remember the three points. And it was, and it was that we have nothing to hide, nothing to prove, and nothing to lose. Doesn't that describe the Apostle Paul's life, it seems? Doesn't that describe the life of a person who's been so deeply and radically loved by the Son of God that there is nothing else that can be taken? There is nothing to be afraid of, even our own sin. Often when our kids leave our house in the morning, we say, or when they get out of the car, if we're dropping them off at school, we'll often say, remember who you are. Which is our way of saying to our kids, remember that you're loved that you're loved by God and let everything that you are and do and think this day be flowing out of that sense of, of love, that you're loved. And so this is what I'd encourage you to do this week is just as you wake up in the morning, would you let your first thought be of just how much Jesus loves you? Of the cross and of the fact that that cross, while it changed everything in the cosmos, was deeply personal.
that it was for you? Would you let the thought of his love be what drives? Or perhaps before you say anything this week, before you do anything this week, would you ask yourself the question, am I doing this because my cup overflows? Am I saying this because I know that I'm deeply loved? May we continue to grow in this foundational truth. This is the foundation of any health in the Christian family. It's to look at each other and to look at ourselves and to know we are deeply loved. Let's pray. Oh God, we ask that you would communicate the reality of your love to the unbelieving corners of our hearts that still clamor to silence the critic by things that we can accomplish and do or ways that we can appear. How we pray that the foundation that Paul unveils in verse 20 here would be our foundation. How we pray that we would be rooted and grounded in love. Make it so, O God. Make it so for Jesus' sake. Make it so for him to be glorified. Make it so that our love for one another would grow hot. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.